Welcome, beautiful people to Camp Koji. My name is Joel, and thank you for joining me as I break down the biggest gaming news from the week that was on the only podcast you will ever need. On today's show, we're going to talk about this Take-Two lawsuit update, and we're just going to end it by, once again, we have to talk about this gigantic Xbox story that's been taking over headlines for the last week but i want to start with talking about the next nintendo switch so last week nintendo revealed some updated sales numbers they had a shareholders meeting and along with that there were a couple more rumors that were coming out regarding the next nintendo switch a lot of people are just calling it the switch 2 right now and first and foremost they announced that nintendo switch is now the best-selling video game system of all time in japan at 33.34 million that surpassed Nintendo DS, the previous record holder at 32.98 million. Now what's incredible about that number is that it's obviously still going to rise. (laughs) Nintendo Switch is not going anywhere. So to find out that now they've beaten that record, they're at the top of all time in Japan and the switch is nowhere near in my opinion complete saturation to the point where people are just going to outright stop buying it if you remember correctly you think back to Nintendo's previous handheld uh, systems whether it was Nintendo 3DS or Game Boy you know those portable systems have a really really long shelf life a lot longer than you think of when you think of a traditional console cycle like PlayStations or Xboxes. Because even if something new comes out, that old one, there's no reason for it to, to stop. And a lot of it is Nintendo's philosophy that um, Nintendo really is it, built off of evergreen titles. And they operate on this philosophy that if you've never played a video game, if you've never experienced it, then it's brand new to you, no matter how long it's been on the shelf. That's why you can, if you notice their charts when they talk about game selling, Breath of the Wild is still selling at an amazing rate for a game that came out when the system first launched. And you can see that evergreen effect throughout a lot of their uh, first party titles. And when the other thing about it that people have to remember is that the Nintendo Switch has technically never had a price drop. This is not normal <laughs> for a system to be, what were we at, seven years now or something like that, that has been on the market without a single price drop. The closest that Nintendo has gotten to dropping the price of Nintendo Switch would be bundles, adding Mario Kart inside of the box when you buy it, for example, introducing the Nintendo Switch Lite, but the core Nintendo Switch has technically never gone through a price drop. So once it drops in price, that number is definitely going to keep going up. They also forecasted that the Nintendo Switch will reach 141 million worldwide units sold by the end of March this year, so just a month away. Now, PlayStation 2 is still king at 155 million units. And to me, there is zero doubt that it will definitely surpass the PlayStation 2 and become the best-selling gaming console of all time. I don't think that there's any doubt that it's going to happen. I think it's just a matter of time. As I said, the system has never gone through an official price drop. And once they introduce this next Nintendo Switch, that's when 
going to see the first official price drop for the original Nintendo Switch. And I think a couple things are going to happen. Number one is that support for the original Nintendo Switch is not going to go anywhere, not just yet. And then, of course, you have the price drop which we're probably going to see the official price go down to at the very least $250. But what's also interesting is that I kind of don't see them phasing out the Switch Lite, which means that that will also drop down to about $150. And then you have the Switch OLED. So I think there are a few things they can sort of do here. They can start to phase out the original Nintendo Switch and then make the Switch OLED sort of the Switch, drop that down to $300. Uh, and then drop down the original switch down to two, two, 250, 200 in order to kind of wipe out that that inventory. But I think, yeah, it, it, there's so many things that they can do with this switch coming out. But let, let's just continue going through what everything else will we'll kind of circle back to that. So I do believe that this will surpass the PlayStation 2 and become the best selling console of all time. I think it's just a matter of time. According to Reuters, which is reporting that the Japanese console giant will implement a custom NVIDIA chip to power the new console. And this is just a rumor, but it's a pretty good one because it's something we've heard in previous years. There was a previous rumor that claimed that the Switch 2 will be able to use features like DLSS 2 Super Resolution and DLSS 3.5 Ray Reconstruction. This is something that has been heavily rumored for a while for a lot of these next consoles happening whether it is this next nintendo switch or the playstation 6 or whatever xbox's console is if there's another one right now it's up in the air all these crazy rumors that we're going to talk about later in the show a lot of them have been there's there's been these discussions about them taking advantage of dlss which is something that really has only been a pc feature which uh, i think is probably one of the best innovations that I can think of in the last few years in terms of video cards that they've been able to do where, you know, for someone like me where I have, I think I have a 3080 on my um, PC right now. And there's hasn't been a moment lately that I played a PC game where I feel like, oh man, I'm, I'm really in desperate need for an upgrade. And I think a lot of that is DLSS. The fact that, I can play games with settings close to ultra and still have a very, very solid frame rate, sometimes even over 60. Like I remember one of the best uses of it for me personally was Cyberpunk 2077, where, yeah, it didn't look like the ultimate path tracing version that you've seen other people posting online. You definitely need a, a really expensive rig to do something like that. But I was more than satisfied with the way DLSS was working. I was able to get a, a really nice, solid 60 FPS locked in with, with uh, high settings across the board. So to see that type of technology now being implemented into consoles, especially something like a portable console, I think sounds really, really cool. Um, I think that this to me sounds like they'll be able to better hit 60 frames per second consistently on handheld, which is not something that a lot of users are used to on Nintendo Switch. Usually 60 FPS is reserved for plugging into your television or docking it. So that sounds really cool. And then there's this other rumor that I, 
I've heard some people were upset about, which is that the device will also use an eight inch LCD screen instead of an OLED screen. And I personally think that there's a reason for that, but um, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Now, Nintendo president Shuntaro Furukawa told shareholders, quote, we approach our business every day with a profound sense of urgency. The generational transition of platforms in the dedicated gaming console business is never easy. We have experienced significant challenges following successful platforms multiple times, so we never consider our current situation to be totally secure. Furthermore, as we pointed out, our business is always exposed to great competition. From a broader entertainment perspective, not only video games, but also various forms of leisure are competitors in this industry. In this environment, there's an increasing need more than ever before to continue offering unique propositions to become a brand that customers choose. To continue offering innovative entertainment that can be enjoyed by our customers worldwide, we believe that continuing with our integrated hardware, software, dedicated gaming console business is the best strategy at this point. As such, we are advancing various research and development efforts. Since our products are not daily necessities, if they are not interesting, we quickly lose people's attention. Therefore, it's crucial to continue efforts to make Nintendo feel close, even outside of the dedicated gaming console, increase customers who support Nintendo IP over the long term, and maintain connections with our customers. This is definitely something that if you're a shareholder, this is exactly what you want to hear. I feel like it's a very, very, Nintendo has a very, very clear direction of where they're heading to next, which I think that Nintendo kind of hasn't, when you really think about it, Nintendo kind of hasn't had that in a while. When you think about traditionally Nintendo, you think about that dual hardware implementation where you had your home console and you had your handheld console. And because of that, I think that there was always something happening within Nintendo where they felt that they had to do some sort of innovation or since they were carving their own path, trying to be very different and very unique and give consumers a reason to choose them over the other two. I think that when you think about Xbox versus PlayStation, it's just got the gap has, has widened for a reason between those two. But I I don't think that there's really like many unique reasons why you... Um, choose one over the other right now is just more loyalty than anything when you choose a playstation over an xbox and then of course exclusives and all that plays into it but i think nintendo always wanted to offer something that was not only very unique but something that cast a very wide net to try to capture as many consumers as possible and i think they they sort of were able to do a lot of that together when they introduced this hybrid of Nintendo Switch. But when you think about some of their other innovations, a lot of it, I think those conversations really started with what can we do that's like very different, that's never been done before, and something that will capture brand new users, probably some that have never played video games before, which was obviously the Nintendo Wii. And then, of course, we all remember the disaster that was Nintendo Wii U. But even if you think about the handheld, when you think about DS and 3DS, you know, Nintendo almost feeling this need, like we need to introduce something 
innovative, something that no one's ever seen before. And that's when they came up with this idea of 3D without glasses, which obviously didn't really work and resonate really well. I sort of, I, I will never forget the first time that I tried the 3DS. You know, it was, it was while I was still working at Nintendo. And I remember the first time trying it. I think myself and anyone else, the first time we tried, there is that like magical moment. I remember clicking on that 3D and going, whoa, this is kind of cool and playing that, uh, I forgot what you called it, that face scanning AR game where you scan someone's face and it become <clears throat> these enemy ships. I don't remember what that game was called, face something. You you sort of have this moment. I remember playing the Street Fighter game and you know just sort of having this moment of like, wow, this is actually really cool. But then I will never forget after like five minutes, I just remember saying like, I don't know how long I can play this. <laughs> you know, it was definitely one of those that I think that there really wasn't enough research and development for something like that to justify that type of feature. And I think that th at that point, Nintendo was still, I think there was a part of them that were afraid that if they just created an in incremental upgrade, the same way as the competitors have been doing PlayStation, you know, four, three, four, five Xbox and their crazy name scheme that it would not be successful. And I think they felt the same exact type of pressure with the Wii U, which is like, we can't just keep a motion control. You know, we have to do something innovative. We have to do something interesting. And that's how they came up with this secondary screen solution of the Nintendo Wii U. And you can see with, with both of those movements, right, from Wii to Wii U, from DS to 3DS, you realize the mistake, right? They tried too hard to be too different and it sort of went off the rails where I think when they were creating these, what they looked at as innovative solutions and you know, I guess some people can look at it as gimmicky. I, I wouldn't really use that term that they sort of lost the plot. There was no moment when they were creating those new, what they looked at as innovations there wasn't really that moment, I think, internally where they thought to themselves, is this something that people are actually going to want? And I think some of that was a little bit of hubris from the Nintendo Wii, where I think you were introducing something. It's like you were giving someone something that they did, never knew that they wanted, and they were, it, it was, they were able to perfectly find a hole in the market. But then now when you look at the Nintendo Switch, obviously they took everything that they learned. They made the smartest decision in company history of combining their home hardware and their portable hardware together. I still say to this day, it's the single greatest decision that Nintendo ever made as a company to combine those teams. And I think the creation of Nintendo Switch made development a lot easier. It was easier to grasp. I don't think you can tell that there wasn't a lot of pressure put on companies to enforce motion controls the same way that they had to with the Wii. You know, when you introduced the Wii U, I think to an extent, you know, you sort of had to a little bit force your team to come up with innovative ways to use a gamepad one way or another, even if it was something minimal, there had to be something that sort of came back to using that gamepad. But I think for Nintendo Switch, they went back to something a little bit more traditional while also trying to capture that motion crowd with, for Nintendo Switch. So that's why you got things like 1-2-Switch at launch that used the uh, 
dual game pads. I still love the innovation of, you know, even to like this day, you know, watching my, my nephews and nieces play Nintendo Switch and the way you can easily play with two players out the box just by each, each of them using a Joy-Con that's the perfect size for children's hands. You know, that, that was definitely one of the best innovations that they made were the detachable Joy-Con. But you saw them kind of go back to something traditional. And I think that Nintendo understands that for their next system, you're better off not reinventing the wheel because you you are in danger of committing the same exact mistake that you made with the Wii U and you made with the Nintendo, uh, sorry, with the Wii U and you made with the Nintendo 3DS. And I also like how Furukawa points out the obvious, which is our products are not daily necessities. If they're not interesting, we quickly lose people's attention. That's a very, that's like an imperative, I feel like mindset that you want from your leadership group when controlling something that exists in the entertainment sector, which is, you know, we're approaching this moment right now in many different economies. I can only really speak for the American economy where I think a lot of families are looking for deals. I think a lot of families are becoming more and more frugal every single day because of everything that has happened over the last few years. And when something like that takes place, the first thing that begins to go is entertainment is, um, or an entertainment and what we would consider unnecessary expenses. So going, you, you don't go out to eat as much, which we've seen has affected the restaurant industry. And we've seen it drastically affect the fast food industry where you have places like McDonald's that understands that like, man, we can't even cater to the same families that we used to, they realized that they saw a drop in sales for families under 45,000 that were generating under $45,000 a year, which was kind of a core demographic for their sales. And they realized like, you know, out the cost of our food just can't keep up. So we're going to have to, you know, continue to maintain our prices to the point that we're attracting more middle-class and upper-class people that are generating you know, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year, and luckily those people have not stopped going to McDonald's. But a lot of people that looked at a place like McDonald's is like, wow, this kind of used to be like a nice, cheap place to come and eat. Maybe just have a, a a burger. You know, me for myself, I just really don't do McDonald's anymore because it's like it's just you no know, fast food. Is I think we all have it in our minds like it's it's fast, it's cheap. You know, it's not great for you. But the price factor was always the the leading reason why you used to go to fast food. So we're, we're living in this moment right now where a lot of more, a lot more people are eating in, they're not going out to eat. And the other thing that takes a hit is entertainment. So going out to theaters, for example, that's how you notice that not many movies do as well throughout the years we used to in combination with the convenience of digital and the fact that, you know, something like Netflix, yeah, it might not have the latest and greatest you know, films playing in theaters, but you're able every single month, you're able to find a few movies that you can enjoy while staying at home since they're going to be cooking at home. You know, going out is an ordeal. You're not just paying for the movie ticket. You're paying for snacks, maybe a, a, a meal before or after, you know, going out to the movie theaters right now can, you know, cost close to a hundred dollars if you're talking about a family or over a hundred dollars actually. So entertainment is definitely one that families start to look at internally and either you're buying a 
console and you are limiting the amount of games that you're purchasing for it or you're searching for deals such as game pass or you know pc and steam and things like that so it's good to see that nintendo's president is very very well aware of the fact that if we don't make our consoles and our gaming and this experience very very interesting we're going to lose people very very quickly because they don't need video games. Not only do they not need video games, but there's not a need for them to upgrade or purchase newer consoles. And I think that's gonna be an advantage that Nintendo Switch is going to have over their competitors. Whereas I think that Xbox and PlayStation users are kind of trained that when a new generation starts, you hop over to the next generation. This is the only generation I sort of bucked that trend because it took so long before you started seeing games that only existed on PlayStation 5, for example. But I think traditionally you're used to just hopping over to the newest and the greatest and the latest, but now prices are rising. We know these consoles are probably not going to launch at a penny less than $500 anymore. And now we know that not only games are going to stick at $70 a pop, but now we're going to start transitioning over to digital only, which means that the price of playing video games is only going to rise. And this is an advantage that Nintendo Switch can hold on to. So I think that they are going to. Now, there was another rumor that was, that was according to a website called Universo Nintendo, which is an outlet that apparently has been accurate with Nintendo Directs and shared the name of Sonic X Shadow Generations before its reveal. So apparently it's a little bit trustworthy. This came via uh, apparently a Portuguese podcast X do Controle by PH Brazil. They are claiming that the new Switch will supposedly be fully backwards compatible, meaning both physically and digitally. Games made for the current Switch should work on the system's successor. There are also these other rumors that this new Switch we will be unveiled in March. I personally don't believe the timeline of March. Um, I personally would elect closer to April, May. But uh, of course, I could be wrong about that. Look, I've been saying for quite some time, this is kind of funny because when I look at this episode that I put together and I look at a lot of the news that was happening last week, there were a lot of things that happened that I felt like I very correctly predicted. And I think one of the things that I've been holding on to for, or I've been saying steadfast for quite some time, if you listen to Camp Koji, is that the next switch is just going to be called a new Nintendo Switch. And I've been hold and I've been talking about that for years and years that I think that this is the way that Nintendo is going to go. And I still feel like that's the best you know, the best movement for this company going forward. I think that what's going to happen is that this next system is going to be just called the new Nintendo Switch echoing back to when they introduced the new Nintendo 3DS. It just, to me, it just makes the utmost sense. I think that once again, Nintendo is very well aware internally that they're about to enter into a moment in economic history where I think a lot of families are no longer going to, not no longer going to really have that money to spend on entertainment or spend a lot on entertainment. And I think they understand that they are in a very, very unique position to offer something 
that no other currently enter into a space where they have zero competition. I mean, zero competition. There is no low cost entry into gaming right now. It just doesn't really exist outside of if you're, if you're going really old school, like PlayStation four, Xbox one kind of stuff, even getting into PC gaming, you're talking definitely a minimum of $500. And then you are sort of limited to a certain generation of games. You're not playing anything that's close to the latest and greatest. And when you think about their current lineup and their pricing, where it's 200, 300, and I think 350 with the OLED, I'm like, um, not a hundred percent. Yeah, it's three fifty. I know I, I wasn't going kind of crazy. Right now, you exist in a really weird moment where kind of your only competitor for something economical is the Xbox Series S. Right now, when this new Nintendo Switch comes out, you can instantly slash your prices by a minimum of fifty dollars. That would put your Nintendo Switch Lite at 150. That will put the Nintendo Switch at 250, and I will put the Nintendo Switch OLED at 300. And then right there, you can introduce the new Nintendo Switch at you know 350, or a lot of people are, are, are talking about 400 dollars. To me, I kind of, if I had to talk about like what I would do, or or kind of my theory on what might happen, is I think that one of those original SKUs is going to get struck down completely and i personally think that it's probably going to be the, the nintendo switch uh, if i'm nintendo i'm actually keeping that oled model going and i'm slashing it down to like i'm going to try to get it down to 250 or 300 so it's either the oled model is going to get cut or the original nintendo switch model gets cut i think you absolutely keep the nintendo switch light introducing something like that at a 150 or man, if you can get it out to a hundred bucks, that is absolute insanity. And you combine that with bringing back something that Nintendo hasn't done for quite some time, which is a Nintendo legacy collection or like selects Nintendo selects. I don't know if you guys remember those, they would have like a unique banner on the box and they would drop their price usually by half. It's something that Nintendo hasn't done for a while because their software sales have not really slowed down, but that's going to naturally begin to slow down as you try to transition to a much more powerful piece of hardware, one in which you're wanting these new companies to sort of take advantage of that new piece of hardware. So I think that there will be either, um, I, I think we're, we're going to see one of those three models get cut. And... I could definitely see Nintendo introducing two models for this new Nintendo Switch, one that's fully digital and one that's not. And I think I would make the fully digital one a lot more attractive, whether that one has an OLED screen or not. Um, that's why I think it would be kind of interesting to get rid of that OLED model and sort of look at the new Nintendo Switch as what we would traditionally look at as a PlayStation 5 Pro as an Xbox One X, like they did those those mid-gen upgrades that uh, obviously commanded a higher price point, but they allowed you to play games at a higher fidelity. And I think what's going to happen is Nintendo is going to continue for 
a little while to continue to have cross-generational games, meaning a game would come out on Nintendo Switch, but if you had the new Nintendo Switch, you can take advantage of extra features, meaning that, hey, when you're playing handheld and you're on the go, you're able to play at 60 frames per second, for example. That was something that we saw the new Nintendo 3DS take advantage of. And there were a few games that were new Nintendo 3DS exclusive, but I think that that's not going to happen in the first year of, of introducing this new system. I personally don't think that Nintendo fully turn, clicks that switch immediately and abandons that old Nintendo switch. I think for them, the play right here is to have your teams create multiple versions of a video game where you have, you can release something and take advantage of what will be over 140 million users. I think about releasing uh, a new Mario game and you put that for launch for this new, new Nintendo Switch and now 140 million people can't play it. And you've, you've proven that that model is not slowing down kind of at all. And personally for me, because of the way that I look at the economy right now, I don't see that that switch, uh, pun, no pun intended, being clicked immediately, meaning that when they announce this new Nintendo Switch, everyone immediately starts switching over or everyone starts abandoning that first one. I think it would, personally for me, I think it would be a mistake to introduce a new model and then introduce games that can only be used on that brand new model. I personally think it would be a mistake. Um, either that or you're doing that for a select game. So maybe internally they have a, geez, what's the new game? Oh, Mario Kart 9. So let's say they've been working on a new Mario Kart 9. In my opinion, that game does not make sense being stuck on just this next Switch. If you're able to do something where the new Nintendo Switch is the best way to play, but it's something that can be played across both consoles. I think that personally makes more sense. And then maybe there are, there are select titles where you have something like a Metroid Prime 4, which I think is one of the reasons why we haven't seen it. Maybe that's something that can only be played on, on the new Nintendo Switch. I think that that's the best solution for them going forward because once again, I think that we are entering this moment where... I think that Nintendo is going to start dabbling in more games being $69.99. And I think for them, they see an opportunity in value gaming, which is something that once again, I think that there's a gigantic hole in the market for it. Where right now, if you're telling yourself like, man, I want to play a, a, a video game. I want to get into video games. Technically, the cheapest places to get in are Nintendo and Xbox. Let's be honest, Xbox is not really a very compelling place right now, especially with all these crazy rumors that are going around. But if you're able to purchase an Xbox Series S and get something like Game Pass, that's a pretty valuable entry level to get into video games. I'm not even going to talk about PC because PC is kind of expensive and it's also complex. It's complicated. It's not a very easy place for a person who's not a gamer to get into. It's not a good entry point. So when you think about them introducing this next switch and completely abandoning this original one, it would just be a gigantic mistake. It's, it's, it's a huge, huge hole in the market. And like I said, if somehow they can work this magic where that original Nintendo Switch Lite can go down to a hundred bucks, that would be insane. I don't think that's going to happen. I could see it going down 
to 150. Um, I think I can also see them in this next generation going a little bit more aggressive with their subscription model and maybe experimenting with adding some games on there, some older legacy titles. But I've been saying for a while that I do think that this that is going to be backwards compatible. Um, you know, I joked around. I remember I tweeted once. I think the Nintendo Switch is is going to be that, uh, or, or no pun intended, <laughs> the Nintendo Switch Switch uh, is going to be that. This next model is only backwards compatible with with digital games. I I think that's kind of crazy. I remember I said that just kind of off the cuff. I don't. I think that would be kind of an insane proposition, but I 100% believe and have been saying for years that I do think it's going to be backwards compatible. I think it just makes, it just makes the utmost sense. It's going to make it a lot easier to transition people over. And it also is going to make you as a consumer feel a lot better of entering in with a Nintendo Switch Lite or entering into the Nintendo ecosystem at $250 for that original Nintendo Switch. It makes you feel much more comfortable to spend money and, and buy digital games and buy physical games because you know that, hey, when that time comes, when I'm ready, when I have the resources to upgrade and pay that, <clears throat> whatever that price is going to be, 400 350 for that next model, that I know that 100%, I'm 100% certain that everything is going to, to move along with me. So... I think that's one of the easiest predictions to make that this thing is going to be backwards compatible. I'm, you know, they talked a lot about the Nintendo account and making sure that it can transition well. There's zero doubt that it's going to happen. I do, once again, I think the only thing that I can see that hasn't happened in the rumors that I've been talking about for a while is that this is going to be just a new Nintendo Switch. And I still do personally think that they are going to dabble with a digital only model. I think that there is enough data going out right now with the Nintendo and Nintendo Switch that a lot of people just play games digitally. Let's be honest, there's a lot of games that are only a box with a piece of paper inside. There are a lot of Nintendo Switch games that are like that. Nintendo, I think, especially through their third parties, have sort of been training people to get ready for something digital. But I don't think that Nintendo is ready to abandon, fully abandon their retail partners just yet. They do still sell a lot of physical, especially because it's physical portable. I think it's very, very different than when you're talking about physical for a game that you can't take with you, such as Xboxes and Playstations right now. But I could see them introducing a digital only model and seeing how something like that uh, could work out, even if it's not something at launch, even something a little bit down the line that it is the OLED model, but it is digital only uh, for an extra 50 bucks or something like that. I could definitely see them doing that just to experiment to see what happens. Because I think for this next console, I think we're going to see more and more Nintendo users move over to going sort of digital only, which, which is going to be interesting. Now, next story is the Take-Two lawsuit update. It's going to be a quick one. A few weeks ago, I covered a story about a lawsuit against Take-Two regarding virtual currencies. Lawyers representing Take-Two have called virtual currencies, quote, fictions created by game publishers in response to a class action suit. The suit accuses the NBA 2K, PGA Tour 2K, and WWE 2K publisher of stealing from players because it doesn't allow them to transfer virtual currencies from past series entries to new ones when they're released. Quote, VC is not plaintiff's property, which uh, VC stands for virtual currency. 
Take-Two's lawyers responded last week in a request to dismiss the case that was spotted by GameFile. Instead, in-game VC are fictions created by game publishers subject to the publisher's terms of service and user agreement. So they're really leaning into, look, everything that these users are playing with in terms of what our game creates and what encompasses it, they've agreed to because that it, it is written into our terms of service that there's this non-transferable, sorry, non-transferable and it's something that you do not own. I think one of the key arguments going forward when we talk about digital ownership is going to be how much does, does the average user understand about digital ownership? And I think that's going to be sort of a key argument brought up a lot by defenses going forward. I think we're going to start seeing more and more people challenging um, user agreements in terms of service in, in, in regards to digital ownership, because I do believe that the average person does not understand that they don't own it. And I've, I've, I've done this before, and I would implore anyone to have conversations with family members. I've done it myself just because I was kind of curious about it. Ask your family members like, hey, have you ever bought, you know, a, a, a song or an album? Or have you ever bought a digital movie on Apple Apple services and, or Apple TV or whatever the heck? Um, and if they answer yes, ask them, do you believe that you own that? Meaning that when you pay for you, it's, it's yours. And I've, I've yet to see sort of a non super techie family member of mine answer. Uh, yeah, of course I know I don't own it. Everyone that I've asked, they personally understand and they believe that it's just like something physical that when they buy it, they own it, that it cannot be taken away from them because that's how physical works, right? You know, we were talking about a few weeks ago about, about how Spec Ops The Line was discontinued. Um, and, you know, currently it can be re-downloaded, but there could come a point that maybe you purchase it and at some point you won't be able to re-download it because for whatever reason they deactivated the server. And it's well within their right to do that. A lot of people are talking about Funimation, Crunchyroll uh, coming together recently and them telling their Funimation users that, you know, hey, those codes that you redeemed when you bought physical media that allowed you to have a digital copy, that's gone. You won't have access to that anymore. And when they messaged that, they told their users, yeah, you, you can, you, you'll, you'll have access to this forever. But then, of course, there's like an asterisk that says with, you know, certain limitations. And if you dig deep into those limitations, you realize that forever is not really true. It's like a, a marketing term. You really don't own it forever. They reserve the right to take it away from you at any point. Most, I think the general, the sorry, the average user does not understand that. I think the average user does believe to this day that when you buy something virtual or when you convert into a virtual currency, you have full agency over it. It's something that you actually own and it's something that a company can never take away from you. This is going to be, I think, a key defense going forward because I think it's very, very important for us to use the law to draw a line to say that even though there's terms of service and user agreements, let's be honest, things are like 30 pages long. Most people, not only do most people not read them, but most people that do read them do not, most of them don't really even understand what's being said 
because of the legalese that they use when 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 writing those things is confusing sort of for a reason but for take two's defense to be that it is a fiction that is created by a game publisher and as such a user you know i think their argument is going to be that the user should be well aware of what they're getting themselves into. They should be well aware that this is a fiction. This is not real. You know, this is not a real currency. I think it's an interesting defense, but I think it is something that holes could be poked into. Unfortunately, I'm not a lawyer, um, you know, so I don't really, I, I can't really speak on the extent in terms of how well I think this is going to go, but I talked about this a few weeks ago as like something that I think all of us need to keep an eye on because this could be a landmark class action lawsuit. And it's something that has been long overdue. I've been saying for a while that the solution to a digital future, we're past the whole vote with your wallet kind of thing. We are now in the territory of we need laws to change. We need, we need better consumer protection. And for me, that has to come with a guaranteed minimum that if you are selling a digital product or a digital currency, that you as the creator, the manufacturer, the publisher, the distributor, that you are responsible for ensuring my access to that for a minimum amount of years, whether that be 10, 15, 20 years. I think that applying a DK to it, meaning that there should be a moment that, hey, maybe you we come up with a solution where, yeah, I don't think companies should be beholden to something like that in perpetuity forever, even though I think that's the great, the, the best solution because obviously companies go bankrupt, things can happen, but there, there has to be a guarantee minimum where it's like, if your game flops a year in, you can't just take the money and run. You have to admit that hey you effed up and you as a publisher have to write off that loss and you have to refund everyone because that's the way that it should be <laughs> like we're, we have to get digital ownership as close to physical as we can so yeah def definitely one to to keep an eye on we're going to end up just going back to this xbox thing so we talked about this last week and there were a few updates uh, after the podcast on monday according to journalist shannon liao Microsoft's head of gaming, Phil Spencer, told employees that Xbox currently has no plans to stop making consoles and that Xbox consoles will continue to be part of its strategy, which involves multiple kinds of devices. Other changes that we had was according to Nick Baker from Xbox Error, Jason Ronald, the person responsible for leading the development of the Xbox Series X and S hardware, will not be in charge of Microsoft's next gaming device. His team got replaced by the Surface team. That is yet again another prediction that I've made uh, I think it was at least like a year ago here at Camp Koji where I was talking about that Xbox should have hardware built by the Surface team because they've proven that they can create portable hardware. So kind of another prediction that I made that came true. According to Tom Warren, Hi-Fi Rush and Sea of Thieves are coming to PlayStation 5 alongside a bigger name that will surprise fans. Um for me, it's probably going to be Forza. I think that's the one that I think would kind of be a little bit surprising and one that I think also equally makes sense. Obviously, in terms of surprising, a very big surprise would be Halo Infinite. I think personally that would be a mistake from Xbox. I think that's a temple IP that um, would definitely begin to erode 
your platform. I think that there are certain games, certain temples that the moment you allow PlayStation to have them, whatever Phil Spencer says, your, your fans and your consumers are no longer going to believe you. So if you let something like Halo and Gears of War go over to PlayStation, that signals that it's almost like the shop is is open for sale. Like take whatever you want. Once you take that step, once you step over that line, you're basically signaling that no game is safe. And even if you're failing, you say, hey, it doesn't mean every single game. This means like a 12 month window minimum for games that come to PlayStation. None of that, whatever you say is not gonna matter because actions speak louder. The moment you let a temple intellectual property like Halo go over to PlayStation, you're done. Like you're you're literally you're, you're literally 100% done. Even if you introduce and say like, yeah, we're gonna have another line of of, of next gen hardware coming out in a few years, whenever that comes out, it's not gonna matter. You're gonna have more and more people jumping over to PlayStation because I feel like as especially as a gamer, an informed gamer consumer. To them, it's like you let them ha have Halo. It's only a matter of time until you just let them have everything. So next generation, I'm just going to go over to PlayStation. For me, you, you can't let that happen. I personally do feel the same about Starfield. Even though Starfield didn't start off very strong, it's still a Bethesda IP. I think that game still has legs. I think you can still invest in it. I think you, you can still grow it. I think it still can get a second wind kind of close to Cyberpunk, maybe not very similar. But I still think that's an IP that should not go to another um, manufacturer. It shouldn't go to, to PlayStation, in my opinion. But I think in terms of a name that will surprise fans, I think Forza would be the, the perfect one. I think that's one that financially makes sense. They've saturated their console. Um, racing games don't really do very well on PC, so that's sort of already saturated too. And I, I think that's why what makes Hi-Fi Rush and Sea of Thieves perfect. Sea of Thieves is sort of saturated because it's been out for over five years, I think now. And for something like Hi-Fi Rush, that is a console first type of game. That's not a game that's gonna sell very well on PC just because of the type of game that it is. We know that Xbox Series X has essentially reached a ceiling and they're definitely not, they're never gonna catch up to PlayStation 5. And we're never going to see an explosion of Xbox Series X sales. I think that Microsoft could officially drop the price down to 350 bucks, and they still wouldn't beat PlayStation at retail. I think we're we're at that moment, unfortunately, with Xbox Series X right now, where it's deja vu with the Xbox One, where I think Xbox now has to admit that that's it. They've sort of already saturated the console market for Xbox Series X. I truly don't believe that there's anything they can do. There's there's absolutely nothing. They could announce right now, alongside Blade, there's going to be a Superman and a Batman game exclusive to Xbox. Um, they could go to Sega and say, hey, that new Jet Set and Crazy Taxi, bring it only to Xbox. Like, I think that they could do anything right now. And I, I, I just don't think anything is going to change. Um, I think they just have to admit defeat once again which is obviously unfortunate. Now, in response to all the, le the leaks, Phil Spencer tweeted the following, quote, we're listening and we hear you. We've been planning a business update event for next week where we look forward to sharing more details with you about our vision for the future of Xbox. Stay tuned.
Now, a lot of people responded to this saying that it's unacceptable. I saw a lot of, and a lot of these are just kind of Stan accounts. I call them Stans. You might hear people refer to them as fanboys. I think the, the proper term is Stans because they're like, it's like a dangerous mental illness in my opinion. You know, the same way that, that you know, we all remember the song that coined that term. It was definitely a, a mentally ill fan. A lot of people are responding to this and saying that's unacceptable, that you can't, you know, there's too much craziness going around for you to wait an entire week. Uh, no, that's not, that's kind of not how any of this works. And I do think that there are some people that generally don't understand it, don't know it. I think some people are being selectively naive here. But for those that don't know, Xbox is obviously a multi-million dollar business and Phil Spencer cannot tweet whatever he wants. I think there's a misconception that I generally think that a lot of people don't know this. Phil Spencer is not allowed to say whatever he wants. That tweet that he put out, we're listening, we hear you, we're planning a business update event next week. Phil Spencer did not come up with that, with that tweet by himself. The only tweets that Phil Spencer comes up by himself with are things that affect Phil Spencer. So Phil Spencer wants to talk about a game he's playing. If he wants to congratulate a publisher on a recent launch, for example, if he wants to talk about, um, you know, how much fun he had at the game awards for a certain game, um, winning an award, anything that pertains just personally to his personal point of view that does not affect Xbox and their future decision-making are things that Phil Spencer can tweet on his own. A tweet like that, we're listening, we hear you, we're planning a business update. Phil Spencer did not come up with that on his own. Uh, even though Phil Spencer is the head of Xbox, you still have a PR team. And most companies and most publishers, they have and, and essentially big publishers, you have an internal and you have an external public relations team. So internally, you have your PR team working hand in hand with your marketing team. And those are the ones that come up with any and every piece of messaging that you've seen. But then primarily you have your PR team that takes care of a crisis. So for example, if you guys remember not too long ago, the FTC Xbox leak where you had these leaks about the future console and them having conversations about uh, you know going digital only this generation, that's really your PR team internally at Xbox working with an external PR team. So you, you guys both work together. You need an external PR team because if you only have an internal PR team, that means that you're working in a bubble. You need an external team that is well-versed in public relations in general, across entertainment, across all different sectors, across all different industries, because they can better inform. So if a PR team comes up with a, with, with a messaging internally, you have your external PR team that you're working with and saying, this might not be the best thing to do. This might not work well because of what's happening in the world, because of what's happening in Israel or whatever, what have you. They're able to help better guide a lot of your messaging. That's why you need both of those teams working hand in hand. A message like this, Phil Spencer is not allowed to, and I'm kind of using allowed loosely, like yeah, technically he can pick up his phone and tweet whatever he wants, but everyone has to um, answer to someone else. And something like this, that's why you see a lot of people who work across different industries and publishers, you'll notice on the 
Twitter, they put my views or my own, for example. Because when you're working with a company, even if you're deemed an official spokesperson for the company, you cannot speak on behalf of the company whenever you want or wherever you want. That's just not how this works. Now, it's, it's pretty obvious when I look at everything that's happening that Xbox had something planned for this month, whether it was at the end of the month or at the beginning of March. I think their play was to do that developer direct that they did a few weeks ago, allow some room to breathe. And within that room to breathe, they were internally having these conversations. And then at some point, they were planning and strategizing, working once again with their internal PR marketing and an external PR team to try to figure out the best way to message this. This is an extremely, extremely sensitive topic because of precedent set by companies like Sega, for example, Sega exiting the hardware business and talking about going just publisher only. For Xbox, if there is this desire to keep your platform going that you're not gonna go straight third party, then you need those PR teams to work with you to be extremely careful about the way that you message. And by extremely careful, I mean that every single word is chosen correctly, right? Like you're reading this off a prompter or you're putting out a press release. And it might be like a Q&A follow-up for different outlets or something like that, media, in order to flesh out anything that you announce. But words are chosen meticulously so people understand that even if they're making this move, that the Xbox platform is still going to be supported. Because if you screw this messaging up, then what you're essentially sort of, then what you can erroneously signal to current and even any future consumers that were considering getting an Xbox is that, hey, we're winding down our hardware business. We're not really going to have a platform anymore. And as we are about to enter into a digital only type of solution for video games, or as digital games, or, or excuse me, as gaming is com becoming predominantly digital, the last thing you want to do is have shaky consumer confidence. Where if I'm a consumer for Xbox now, I'm afraid of buying a digital game because it can just kind of be taken away from me. That's what happened with Stadia, right? Where I always talked about Stadia like, I think you're insane to, to buy any games on Stadia. I, I think you know, there's no way anyone should trust Google. I said that way before Stadia launched. And of course, then they shut down. And now all that money that you spent is just gone. So if you're not really careful what you're saying, you, that messaging can come across that way, especially unfortunately with the way that news spreads now, especially on Twitter, a lot of platforms that unfortunately have a lot of influence, a lot of these Twitter handles that have a lot of influence, will take things out of context and, and, and spread things. And we saw it happening with these rumors over the last few weeks where I personally think what happened was, and I tweeted about this, is I think that this is a Microsoft versus Xbox sort of conversation. They have Satya Nadella and the team at Microsoft kind of nipping at Xbox heels in a sense of like, you know, I spoke about this last week about all the money that they've invested. And it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, we, we kind of gave you this green light. We gave you these blank checks. We, we gave you this, sort of this burn rate for setting up Game Pass and understanding that we're going to be losing money for quite some time. 
But I think that there was probably internal conversations that by now there should have been a much bigger cash flow coming in that all the moves that Phil Spencer and his team went to Xbox, or sorry, sorry, daddy Microsoft to ask for money. I think that there was this promise that, hey, when we make these moves, we're going to increase our uh, our console market share. And it's obvious, it's it just obviously did not work. So my theory is that internally there's some Xbox employee that is upset and does not want this to happen. And for them, they felt that if they leaked this information and Microsoft sees the outcry from the public, that it's sort of like an extra defense that they can enter if in these meetings to go into the meetings and say, look, there's rumors going around. Look at how upset Xbox users are. They're talking about selling their Xboxes. They're talking about abandoning their platform. This is going to happen if we, you know, give PlayStation the lot, if we kind of bring every, over every single IP. The other problem, unfortunately, when it comes to information, especially on Twitter, is that these rumors take on a life of their own because they are interpreted by someone else. There's always a middleman in this news. So you have a person like Tom Warren at The Verge that says, yeah, I kind of heard that they're talking about Indiana Jones. Now, Tom Warren, when he writes that article, he puts it the way that he heard it, which is like, hey, these are conversations happening. Unfortunately, now then you have a middleman and sometimes that middleman is a Stan account that has their own allegiance to Xbox or PlayStation for whatever dumbass mental illness reason. And then now it's filtering through their brain and now they're spitting it out to their thousands of followers and now their thousands of followers are retweeting and sharing that. And all of a sudden now it becomes, uh, wow, Indiana Jones, Gears of War, Halo, everything's going over the PlayStation, but that's not really the origin. It, it's a really shitty game of telephone that we have to play now on on Twitter. And the thing that I need everyone to understand is that these are conversations. These are things that are probably brought up in his meetings of Microsoft going to Xbox and saying, uh, and, and going to their, their teams, whether it's their marketing teams or financials teams, teams that handle their P and L's and sort of having those conversations of what would happen. What does this scenario look like if we, put all these games over on, on, on X on PlayStation. And when that conversation happens, someone breaks out either an individual or a small team and they crunch the numbers. They look at how, how, how successful has gears of war been? How, how much has it sold from Xbox 360, Xbox one? How much did it sell when we pulled out an HD update? How much did gears four sell? How much did gears five sell? Um, what did the reviews look like? And you you crunch all that together and then you talk about, okay, if we put this game on PlayStation 5 out of their 50 million players, how many of those players do we believe are going to purchase Gears of War? But then you have to look at that financial data and say like, yeah, this is how much money we think we would make, barring obviously removing the development costs of having someone port that over, do we have an internal team porting over? Are we taking coalition away from what they're working on in order to port over Gears of War? Probably not, which means that we will have to go to another team. Can we trust that team? Will that team do a really good job of porting over, over Gears of War? What does that expense look like? So you take 
you, you, you subtract all of that and you come up with a number that says, this is how much we think we could make on PlayStation. But then the other half of it is you have to have someone um, sort of paint you a scenario of what are the, what's the butterfly effect of putting Gears of War on PlayStation, on putting Halo on PlayStation. Like, yeah, this is the profit that we make, but then you're, you're also having a, a, an individual or a small team come up with projections of what happens to Xbox as a brand if we do this. And that's where you have someone projecting like, hey, our brand loyalty is going to go down and customer loyalty is more important now than it's ever, ever been. Customers are no longer going to trust us when we say that games are gonna be exclusive. We've been talking about games being exclusive for a while. Then you also have someone come up to projections of what does it look like if we stop doing day one Game Pass games and understand that part of that calculation is you have to talk about that we've been promising this for years. We've been telling people that this was our strategy. Now we're going back on that strategy. So all of this combined, you're not only looking at how much money you're making a profit, how much money you're potentially losing, but you're also talking about what what is the impact on our brand, on our overall, the overall health of our business if we make this decision. Now, mind you, as I said, these are still just internal conversations. Xbox, to me, needs to get some sort of, even if you have to get like a third-party investigation team, they have to figure out where these leaks are coming from because there's not been a much more damaging set of leaks for the big three, whether it's Nintendo, PlayStation, or Xbox, than it has been for Xbox. When we think about Xbox, they haven't been able to control their own messaging for a while now. I mean, for quite some time where there was that giant FTC leak, like we're constantly and consistently hearing leaks happening internally at Xbox. And a lot of that is usually a disgruntled employee. And then you combine that with the fact that we're in an era of social media right now where having a following is very, very valuable. So it's like you kind of can't blame um, Jeff Grubb um, Tom Warren, Jez Corden, these people who run these Xbox centric podcasts, Xbox era and Nate, the gray, whoever all these other people are, uh, who's another one special Nick or something like that is this other person's name. They're just looking out for themselves. They know that when they leak something, even if it's just a conversation, even if the person that went to whatever Xbox era and said, look, they've actually been talking about bringing Starfield over, but it's just a conversation. The person at Xbox era is not thinking about Xbox. They're not going like, damn, you know, if I, if I say that Starfield is being considered to come to PlayStation, that's, that's, that's going to do a lot of damage to Xbox. Like their PR team is going to start to panic. Like they're going to have to address this. I'm, I'm messing up their, 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 their internal plans. They're I'm messing up their internal conversation. I'm forcing their hand to have to address this a lot quicker than they were ready to. All that, that Xbox era person is thinking of is like, oh, if I publish this on my website, or if I say this on my podcast, more people are going to listen to my podcast. I don't give a fuck about my Xbox and Microsoft. So there's a part of me that's like, I kind of get that. Like you're out for yourself. You're running, you're technically running a business. If you're a writer or a journalist, especially if you're talking about you, you own the podcast that you're on, 
the most important thing is that you're building the amount of people that listen to your podcast. So you're just going to leak shit left and right, even if it's just an internal conversation, even if it's not something set in concrete, because you know that that's like the era of Twitter that we're in. People just eat that shit up and they retweet and they share it and they're going to morph it. And it's going to be a shitty game of telephone, but you don't care because what you got out of it is your podcast or website, Xbox era, whatever podcast name, um, or your article or your name as a journalist is going to be spread across Reddit, across Twitter, across Facebook, TikTok, across, uh, you know, all these other websites, IGN is going to write an article about you. And now your following is going to go up because people are going to go like, oh, wow, this guy, you know, Tom Warren, this guy knows things about Xbox. Whoop, I'm going to go ahead and follow him on Twitter. I'm going to turn my notifications on because this guy's in the know. I'm going to be able to know things before anyone else, right? So they're they're greedy, right? They're, and I don't mean greedy in a, like a horrible way, but they're, or I guess I should say they're just looking out for themselves. So that's why they're, why they just kind of keep sharing this shit. But these are just conversations. These conversations happen at every single company. What I just told you in terms of projections, in terms of, um, you know, trying to figure out, Hey, if we made this decision, how would it impact us? I guarantee you right now, Nintendo internally had a conversation about bringing games over to PC. I can 1000% guarantee you that those conversations happen. But once again, it's just conversations. It's just, it's like when we, that Xbox email that leaked where Phil Spencer, people at Xbox were like, man, maybe we should buy Nintendo. Sometimes it's just off the cuff bullshit like that. We're like, man, what, what would, or, or I guarantee you someone at Xbox is like, man, do you think, do you think Valve would ever sell Steam? Do you, do you think that that's something that we could get away with? Do you think that there's a number that they would accept? I'm telling you, these conversations happen all the time because they have to. You have to have these conversations. You have to look at these things. And if you're Nintendo, you're thinking to yourself like, okay, what would that look like if we brought games to PC? Maybe what, what, if, what if we start small? What if it's something minor? Because these conversations happened with mobile. There was a moment in time where we never thought Nintendo would release any game outside of their own dedicated hardware. And it happened. It happened because they had an internal conversation. After having that internal conversation, they looked at the projections. They looked at the, the amount of profit. They internally spoke with their teams and understood that there's we can build, you know, sort of unique experiences that exist only on mobile. There was someone internally that looked at the projections and they said they felt very confident telling the leaders at Nintendo, like, look, if we do this, we can do this in a way that we believe can circle people back to our brand. We can funnel mobile players back into Nintendo Switch by ensuring that we're not giving them a full-fledged Mario Kart experience. We're giving them Mario Kart Tour. It's not actual, actually the whole, we can't give them the full Mario Kart game because they're going to stop buying Nintendo Switches. We can't do that. So you come up with these conversations and projections and then you make that decision and say like, you know what, this actually makes a lot of sense. I think we should do it. But what Nintendo had is something that Xbox now doesn't have. They were afforded the time and the space to have those conversations and have them play out and bring those projections out and see what that looks like. Now Xbox is having their hand forced. And like I said, Phil Spencer is not just going to off the cuff go on Twitter 
And unless the rumors are a thousand percent false, he's not going to come forward and say, yeah, this isn't true, guys. Don't worry about it. And even if he did, he can't say that on his own. He's still going to his PR team. He's still talking internally to his, his marketing team, the external outside PR firm. And they're having those conversations and they're talking about, okay, look, we, we see these rumors they're getting out of hand. They're obviously not true. Let's come up with, with a tweet. Let's do it through Phil Spencer. It doesn't really make sense to do it through an official Xbox account. A team works on it. They type something up. Ah, no, that word doesn't make sense. Let's replace it with this. And, well, you know, it's not conversational enough. It sounds a little bit too corporate. Remember, this is coming from Phil. And and that's how that's done. That's that's how this shit works. But obviously, there are there is some validity to this rumor. I personally still believe, and I tweeted about this, that I still think that this is something that they had conversations about what does our business look like if we port more games over there, then they, they project projections for what, what happens day and day. What if um, Everwild, instead of coming just for Xbox, we do Xbox, PC, PlayStation, and this new Nintendo Switch? What does that look like? I guarantee you that all those conversations happened. I still think that what came out in the end is that our platform would suffer too much. Because remember, that platform is is the that's the cash cow that Xbox has. The fact that every game that's put on there, essentially even by third parties, anytime you buy a skin, anytime you buy a battle pass, Xbox captures 30%. So whatever profit you think you're going to make by putting Halo and Gears and all this Forza and all that other shit on PlayStation is going to pale a comparison to the amount of money that you're going to lose by having users leaving your ecosystem, leaving your platform and start going over the PlayStation. Because third party right now is already at a point where they really don't see a need to publish anything on Xbox. We saw it happen last generation where even like Capcom, Resident Evil 4, that came out on PlayStation 4, didn't come out on Xbox One. Street Fighter 6, that came out on PlayStation 4, didn't come out on Xbox One because they don't see any profit on there. Now you're really screwing yourself up for the next generation. Whereas like for a lot of people, it's like, well, why the hell do I want to buy an Xbox? But people just need to, like I said, people need to calm down because once again, Xbox has had their hands forced. And Phil can't, like I said, he can't just tweet whatever he wants. It's not how this works. Like I, I I've spoken many times on this podcast that I, that I used to work for Nintendo. And during my time with Nintendo, I was a spokesperson, meaning that I was one of the very few people. I was actually only one of two people on the entire East Coast that was trained as a spokesperson. I went through a lot of training to do it. So what that meant was that I was able to speak on behalf of the company, I was able to represent the company in interviews, whether it's video or written, newspapers, magazines, whatever it may be. But that didn't mean that I could say whatever I wanted. <laughs> you know, it didn't mean that if someone walked up to me and said, "Hey, I'm I'm from Washington Post. I wanted to do a story in this new Zelda game. Is this someone I could talk to?" It doesn't mean that I could go to that person and say, "Like, yep, I'm a spokesperson. Like, I can talk to you." No. And the same thing with Phil Spencer. Someone goes up to Phil Spencer and says, hey, Phil, can we have an interview about uh, this new initiative, the Xbox Future? Phil can't just say, yeah, let's do it. 
Phil has to go back to his PR marketing team and say, hey, does it make sense for me to do this right now? So when he had that um, interview on the Xbox, what was it, like the kind of funny Xbox show where he talked about something that we're now seeing the effect of, where he talked about how we lost the worst generation to lose. doesn't matter how good Starfield is. It's not going to lead to more console sales. Phil Spencer was right, which is why I think Xbox is still in the best hands with Phil Spencer. He can't just get invited by uh, Greg. I think it's Greg who runs kind of funny. Greg can't pick up the phone or, or send him a DM and say, hey, would you like to come on the show and talk about this? Phil can't just say, yeah, sure. That sounds like a great idea. Phil still has to go to his marketing and PR team and say, hey, I even if Phil's saying like, hey, I think this would be a good look for us. I think I can try to spin this and get better control of this conversation, especially Redfall didn't do so well. I think it would be good for, for me to, to, to do this interview. Then what happens is that Phil goes through a bit of prep. And what happens is that you have your marketing, you have your PR team, your internal, your external PR team, and you come up with, you know, generic ways to basically say like, okay, we want to stay on this topic. This is where we want to steer the conversation. Another thing that might happen is they're going to prepare for Phil possible questions. Like, hey, these are possible curveballs that they might throw at you. Um, like I remember they asked a question about Starfield, like, hey, is Starfield gonna be 60 frames per second? Are we gonna find out about that? I remember that was like a big question at that moment. I, you know, I, I feel like it's very likely that someone internally at PR was like, yeah, so we've been seeing a lot of chatter. A lot of people are worried about Starfield. What's it gonna be? 30 FPS, 60 FPS on the Xbox. You know, there's been a lot of conversation about that. They're probably gonna ask you about that. We think that you should answer by just saying like, yeah, we're gonna definitively tell people ahead of time, but do not, say it during this interview that it's going to be 30 fps even if they know at that moment yeah it's going to be 30 fps locked on xbox we don't want that message to come from you off the cuff we want um you know the the bethesda team to control that messaging i think they can better flesh out why it, it was 30 fps and that's exactly what they did todd howard fleshed it out a bit in his own interview and he was talking about how oh it's a choice for us to do 30 fps for console we did it because we thought it was the best solution or the you know so that's, that's really how this stuff works. Like you don't, you're not out there alone, you know, because it, it just, it, it obviously it just wouldn't make, it just wouldn't make any sense, right? Like I said, if someone walked up to me while I was at Nintendo, I still had to tell them like, okay, here's the person you have to email. Or I had to ask that person for his or her credentials. Like, hey, give me your email, give me your phone number. And I'll email the person who, um, like the internal PR contact that I have. Once I email them this and I say like, hey, this, these guys are came in here, they want to interview about Legends of the Breath of the Wild. Um, here's their email, here's their phone number, you guys can discuss it. The next step then is if they decide like, yeah, this makes sense for us to have Washington Post write an article about Legend of Zelda, then the question becomes, okay, is Joel the right person to do this? Just because I'm media trained doesn't believe doesn't mean that I'm the perfect or the right person to do it. Sometimes it was yes. It was like, yeah, I, I, can, I think it makes sense for Joel to do this. And then what would happen is that then I would have to sit down and have a conference and a phone call with someone from PR. And we're going to have a conversation. We're going to talk about uh, what it is I should be talking about. What is it that I should be avoiding? And there will be prep. Like, hey, um, you know, one question I, I'm thinking about things like currently you know, in this current climate, they might tell me like, hey, someone might ask you about crunch culture or 
you know, someone might ask you about unionizing, right? Like unionizing is such a big thing right now. If someone asks you about, hey, so how does Nintendo feel about unions? This should be your answer. And usually an answer like that would be like, I'm steering someone away from the question, <laughs> you know, like, because if I'm officially talking on behalf of the company, I definitely can't sit there and just blanket say like, yeah, I think unions are a great idea, <laughs> you know, unless that was, you know, the company's official way to look at it. So it's the same thing with, with, with Phil Spencer. It just makes sense. Even though, even if Phil Spencer is, we obviously know this man is a very capable, very intelligent guy. You can't run a business on your own. You need these experts that are going to tell you like, yeah, if someone brings this up, if someone brings up, you know, hey, Phil, we, we see you're putting high fire rush in the sea of thieves. You know, how, why, why should customers trust you that these other games are never going to go to PlayStation? And to answer that question, it's not just Phil Spencer just freestyles it at the top of his head. Part of it is prep. Part of it is these PR teams knowing that, yeah, this is, there's definitely a potential that this question is going to be asked. This is the way that we think you should answer it. Blah, blah, blah. And then they, they come up with a strategy for it. Phil Spencer can't just say whatever he wants. That's not how this works. And it doesn't work that way because the the company that Phil Spencer worked for is not called Spencer Gaming. It's not some small hole in the wall out of a garage indie publisher. We're talking about a multi-billion dollar company that whose parent is a multi-trillion dollar, is a trillion dollar company, right? There's a lot at stake. One wrong word, one one wrong sentence can cave your stock price. Like, you know, this is, it has to be very, very calculated and it has to be discussed. If you're interested in terms of how, what I think the Xbox might be doing, I did tweet it. You can f go to my Twitter, We Are Joel, a few days ago. I tweeted what I think the Xbox is doing. Obviously, we're way over time on today's podcast, so I'm not going to go into detail with that. But I was kind of talking about them them, them tr maybe trying to get a, ahead of the digital-only future that we're heading into. Um, so yeah, go, go and check that out. This week's high releases, February 13th, we have Banisher's Ghost of New Eden, PC, PS5, Xbox Series X, Lies of P, their Wolong collab, comes out on February 14th. PC, PS4, PS5, Xbox One, Xbox Series X, Tomb Raider 1 through 3 Remastered. That's coming out to every platform on February 14th. February 15th, we have Plate Up coming to PC, PS4, PS5, Xbox One, Xbox Series X is also launching on Game Pass. Hellscape is entering PC Early Access on February 15th. Also on that same date, we have Lake coming to Switch. And then finally, February 16th, we have Mario vs. Donkey Kong coming on Switch, which I still kind of can't believe they're remaking this game. I think that this is going to be, I mean, in Nintendo terms, kind of the first failure in a while. A failure for them is probably less than a million copies um, or or just one million. But yeah, I, I think it's kind of a, a weird game to port over. I'm very curious as to how it's going to do. And then finally, the game that's absolutely going to fail, Skull, Skull and Bones, finally comes out after like, what, a decade? Uh, that's coming to Amazon Luna, PC, PS5, and Xbox Series X. There's just no way this game succeeds. Uh, Ubisoft is going to lose so much money with this game. Time for us to wrap it up. Stories we didn't have time to get to. Steam DB reports that Helldivers 2 peaked at 155,926, setting a record for a PlayStation-published PC title with over 1 million in sales. So this is definitely, if you're a Camp Koji listener, this is a prediction I made years ago, a very long time ago. Uh, that I said when PlayStation starts doing live services is going to come day and date to PC. I was 
uh, right. And obviously, as you can see, it was the right decision to make. Some people are saying that this means that more games are going to be day and date. Absolutely not. I do not think that's what's going to happen here. I think, is there a scenario where at some point, you know, uh, Last of Us 4 or something like that comes out day and date to PC? Yes, I do think so. But I don't, I think we're far away from that. I think we're better off. You're going to see Windows starting to shrink where it's going to be a two-year wait between the PlayStation 5 or PlayStation version and the PC version. I don't think we're going to get day and date single player games. I think it's still going to be a long time. And I think that's the right way for them to go. Disney announced a $1.5 billion investment in the equity stake of Epic Games. The two companies are also partnering to create, quote, an all-new games and entertainment universe connected to Fortnite. In addition to being a world-class games experience and interoperating with Fortnite, the new persistent universe will offer a multitude of opportunities for consumers to play, watch, shop, and engage with content, characters, and stories from Disney, Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars, Avatar, and more. Another prediction that I made years ago that came true. I made this prediction probably two to three years ago. I believe it was in, in uh, called Into the Metaverse. It was like episode 70-something where I said that this is eventually going to happen with Disney because Disney is not going to ignore building an amusement park that never closes. And it looks like that's exactly what's happening right here. Um, I did see a lot of people responding to this um, in, in terms of gaming terms. A lot of people are like, oh, you know, I can't believe Disney's surprised that there's so many gamers right now. They they kind of abandoned gaming. Look what they did with, with LucasArts and things like that. And I want to um, reiterate, this is not about video games. This is not a gaming play. This is an advertising play. This is a new way for them to advertise. Once again, opportunities for consumers to play, watch, shop, and engage. This is an advertising platform for them. I've been saying it for years. And yeah, it came through. Ubisoft co-founder and CEO Yves Guimot has defended the $70 price tag for Skull and Bones, calling it a quadruple A game. Let me tell you right now. The worst lie you can ever tell is a lie is, is lying to yourself. And this is definitely a lie that Eve Gimon knows is not true. <laughs> this is it's nowhere near a quadruple A game. They obviously Yeah, this is ob obvious just PR bullshit. They know this game is gonna fail. And we all know the only reason this game exists is because of some shitty deal they made with the country of Singapore, where for some reason they have to release this game. They had no choice. They were forced to release this game. Some Someone drew up a really shitty deal, and now they're going to lose millions and millions of dollars because of it. And finally, the Xbox Series X and S version of Final Fantasy XIV will require at least Xbox Game Pass Core. This is kind of funny because Xbox is now leading on Square Enix, drawing their partnership closer, but they're still a second-class citizen. If you buy this game on PlayStation, you do not need PlayStation Plus to play it, you just need to pay the monthly Final Fantasy fee. On PC, obviously, you're not having to pay to play online. So Xbox is now officially the worst version to buy this game, which is kind of funny because it's porting over late, is porting over into a smaller subset of consoles. So you're porting over close to 25 million instead of the 50 million users that you have on PlayStation. And now you're telling people that they need Xbox Game Pass Core, which is, what is it, up to $10 a month right now, minimum. And that's without the Final Fantasy fee, which I think is another 10 bucks a month. Um, what's even the point of porting this over to Xbox then at that point? 
Shout out, shout out to Rockstar Games. Grand Theft Auto V has shipped over 195 million units since the release in 2013. The franchise has shipped over 420 million units since launching in 1997. They also announced Red Dead Redemption 2 has sold over 61 million copies, making it the seventh best selling game of all time. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for joining me. Please follow us on Twitter and YouTube at Kepkoji for future updates. Once again, I'm Joel, and I'll see you all next week.